Well, good morning to you all. It's a delight to be here. Last Sunday I was actually preaching at Cookfield Baptist Church in Sussex and uh, Natalie came up to me, the pastor's wife came up to me and said, oh, next week I understand you'll be meeting my twin sister. And so I did. Uh, and it's a joy to be with you all. Um, Rosie and I must bring greetings from the fellowship where we're still in membership at Hook Evangelical Church in Surbiton, Surrey. Those of you who are old enough to remember the good life, you'll know where uh, Surbiton is. It really was uh, a real place, unlike Ambridge. Uh, and um, I-, I want to bring greetings from the pastor, Paul Pease, the elders, deacons and members of the church. Uh, we stand in the same unchanging gospel as you do. We preach God's word, we believe the inerrancy of scripture, and that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Uh, We are situated almost immediately midway between London Heathrow and London Gatwick, so it's a a nice quiet corner of England. Um, And um, we're right within the the 110-mile circular M25 around London, the Ring of Steel. It's known as the longest car park in Europe. Uh, And those of you who have ever used it will know and understand that. So greetings from a sister church nearly 300 miles south. And uh, those of you who were not with us, able to be with us yesterday evening, I'm just going to remind you that we spent some time together looking at the many uh, dig sites and the museums of the world for those items that authenticate or illustrate the biblical record. Now, if for whatever reason you were unable to be with us yesterday evening, you don't need to lose out because um, I was just giving a snapshot of all that is contained in this uh, excellently produced book. Uh, It's a a delightful book just to thumb through. It's called Evidence for the Bible. I produced it with my colleague Clive Anderson from Hampshire. Um, And we have given you here some of the, the best items right across the world in the museums and the archaeological sites that illustrate or authenticate the biblical record. It is, does not assume any knowledge or interest in archaeology. In fact, the word doesn't even appear on the front cover because we couldn't spell it anyway. But uh, we, we've written it in a way that you will find easy to read and fascinating. It has over 200 full-color pictures in it. And the great scoring point in my mind, because I like books like this, is that uh, you, you never have to turn a page to finish an article. That is one article. That is one article. They may be linked, but they're separate articles. You turn a page and you begin a new article completely. There are timelines at the back to put all the empires in context for you, easy to understand ones. There are some larger uh, articles in the back dealing with some significant issues, five or six issues that you may have heard of or be interested in, even tracing out exactly when did Jesus die and also who might have been the uh, pharaoh of the time of the Exodus. Uh, There are deeper articles if you want to go into, but even those are easier, easy to understand. For those of you who want to do further research, we have referenced everything we have said. There's a full bibliography at the back, so you can either use it as a coffee table book to flip through, or you can study deeper if you want. Now, it is beautifully produced as a 250-page hardback, and therefore is extremely expensive. The retail cover price is £25, but it's available downstairs for you today at £12.50. 
and there's a lot of other books downstairs as well. It is a self-service, as we told you. Uh, you look reasonably, reasonably honest, so that's fine with us. But Rosie will be hovering, not to keep an eye on you, but just if you get muddled with the change, uh, she'll help you out. So do take advantage of that over coffee afterwards. Now please turn with me to the Word of God, and I'd like to, you to turn back to the, one of the two passages that was read earlier, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. Jesus says in a very familiar passage, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now this is important, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Let me begin by putting our verse into context. It's too often taken as a promise by some that if we come to Christ, our life will from then on be comfortable, smooth and easy. Well, you don't have to go very far in your Christian life before you realize that it is to know Christ is anything but comfortable, smooth and easy. And our Lord's promise of an easy yoke and a light burden contrasts, you see, with the laws and the rules and the regulations that the Pharisees demanded before you could have, have any hope of being right with God. And Christ was saying, I can offer you salvation, reconciliation to my Father in heaven, and live a, and live a life of complete security in me if you put your faith and trust in me and stop trying to earn your salvation. In that sense, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And oh, how many today have a heavy burden of religious duty or ceremony that they think somehow will get them right with God. You're not among them, are you, this morning? Those who believe that somehow if they do enough, work hard enough, could live good enough, they could somehow get right with God. And Jesus is saying, that is a terrible burden upon you, and you will never get right with God that way. It is not possible. Our Saviour says, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. But it's that phrase, I am gentle and humble in heart, that I want to draw your particular attention to. You see, the verse is all about peace and rest. But in order to obtain salvation and a restful life as a Christian, it would appear that humility, Christ-like humility, is absolutely indispensable. Humility means, first of all, that we come to Christ with the simplicity and the trustfulness of a little child. And that's what Jesus means in verse 25, when he says, you've hidden these things, Father, from the wise and the learned, and revealed them to little children. It's not that only children can understand the gospel, but only those who come like little children can understand the gospel. As our hymn writer once put it, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. And you know, this kind of humility is one of the greatest barriers against many people become, becoming Christians. You see, it means that we have to admit that we are rebel sinners by nature, that we can offer God nothing for our salvation. We must hate our sin and with simple childlike trust and faith come to Christ for salvation. That is the essential humility to commence the Christian life. 
That is the context of the verse in front of us. Jesus condemned the cities that saw his miracles, heard his teaching, watched his life, and yet refused to acknowledge him as Lord and Saviour. They were too proud to do so. And if ever you want to be at rest in your soul and know what it means to have peace with God and security for all eternity, that is where you have to begin. You have to begin with the humility that Jesus is talking about. And so I begin by asking you that question, have you come that way? There is no salvation for those who compare themselves with others and conclude that they're therefore not all that bad. Of course you can go around Sunderland and you can find many people that are worse than you, but that does not make you right with God. After all, there's no, not much value in the United Kingdom government uh, boasting in the fact that our national debt is a lot less than the Greeks. It doesn't get us anywhere. It doesn't achieve anything. There is no salvation for those who cannot see why anyone should call them a sinner. There is no salvation for those who are not sorry for their life of rebellion and indifference to God. We have to come to Christ in humility, recognizing how bad we really are and knowing that Christ alone can take away all our guilt, our sin and our punishment and give us peace with God. But, there is a great deal more in this verse. Because my supposition is that most of you sitting out there this morning will be saying, yeah, I've come that way, that's fine. I know I am a sinner. I have confessed my sin to Jesus Christ and I recognize that there is no good thing within me. All my good works and righteousness in the sight of a holy and a pure God are like filthy rags. I have come that way. And if that's what you mean by humility, Brian, I've walked that path. I've come like a child and put my trust and faith in Christ. Fine. But now let's turn this verse around and apply it as Jesus was to his disciples. You see, to find this restful life that Jesus speaks of, we must live a life of humility. And that is our subject this morning. As with every area of life, Christ is our great model. Listen to him again. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Now let's be clear. Our Lord knew what it was to be angry. We're told in the Bible that he looked around at the Pharisees and the people selling and uh, things in the temple and uh, exploiting the people and he was angry with them. He was angry at the leaders leading people astray in the wrong direction. He called them hypocrites. He had some of the uh, most severe words that you will find uh, of the religious leaders of his day all came from the lips of Jesus. He called them whitewashed sepulchres. You're right on the outside, but you're inside you're full of rottenness. He could be very angry. But that is not against his humility. He is our example. Now remember who he was. He is the sovereign Lord who created the heavens and the earth and everything that there is. Without him there was nothing made that was made. He is the sovereign God of eternity. The eternal second person of the triune God. He's the one who created the angels and before whom all the angels fall down and cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is pure and clean and wise in every part of his character. And yet when he came to this earth, 
a massive step of humility for such a God. He came as a child in a mother's womb and as a baby laid in a hay box. As Kendrick writes in one of his songs, he who strode among the stars has to learn to walk again. That was humility. But his conception and his birth and his life here was not to show how humble God is. That would be pride. But to show how much he cared. The purpose of humility is never humility. As you'll see. Where would you turn, maybe in the gospel records, for the greatest expression of Christ's humility during his earthly life? Well, your mind might run back to that rather strange and unexpected occasion in the Last Supper, when at the end of the supper, Jesus left the table, took a towel, wrapped it around himself and a bowl of water and began washing his disciples' feet, something they should have done to him as he came in. That was the task of the lowest grade slave in the first century Roman Empire, washing the dirty, smelly feet of the guests. This is how the record goes. The evening meal was being served and Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, is the next word, therefore, as a consequence of this, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel round his waist, And after that he poured water in a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel wrapped around him. And you'll remember Peter objected. And then came the lesson applied. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, and you should also wash one another's feet, I've set you an example that you should do as I've done. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now Jesus was not play-acting here. Nor was this some kind of mock humility. It was not the action of a great man who takes on a menial task to show what a great man he is. That's not what Jesus was doing. Remember, Christ was on his way to the cross and there was nothing more humiliating than the death of the crucified criminal on a Roman cross. Whipped and beaten, stripped naked and spat at and then hung out for everybody to glare and gloat over. That's what it was to be on the cross, nothing less. And this is how Paul describes it a little bit later when he's writing to the Christians at Philippi. He made himself nothing. Remember, he who was everything, he who made everything, but by a word of command in less than a week, he who made everything made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, says Paul, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, would you describe humility in any other way than that? He who was everything became nothing and died on a cross. But in that passage I've just quoted from Philippians 2, I started a bit too far in. Because in the, I started verse 7, in the previous verse, verse 6, Paul writes, who, being in very nature God, 
did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Now, for a long time, our Bible translators didn't really know how to translate that single Greek word there that is translated something to be grasped. It's the word hapagmos, and they weren't sure what it really means. We now know. We know that it referred to something that is used for your own personal advantage. So see it this way. In other words, what Paul is saying is that Christ never used the fact of his eternal nature, co-equal with the Father, co-creator of the universe, to his own personal advantage. He never used it as his ace card. Or to put it another way, he never pulled rank. Early in his ministry and in his hometown of Nazareth, his preaching was rejected. And we read these words in Luke chapter 4. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the hill was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Was that just to save his own skin? To save his own life? Twice they picked up stones, John 8, John 10, twice they picked up stones when he claimed to be equal with God. And each time the Bible says his unseen power restrained them. Was that just to save his own skin, his own life? No, of course not. He was not saving himself from death. He was saving himself for the cross. And that was for you. When the gang came to arrest him in Gethsemane, you remember what he said? Who, do you, who is it you want? It's an incredible little story in John 18. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Well, I'm he. And then what do we read next? They all fell down on the ground. Here they are. These thugs that have come to arrest him. All their sticks and their swords clattering into the dust. And he steps forward and he says, I'm asking you again, who have you come for? Jesus of Nazareth. Well, I've told you, I'm he. Let these go. In other words, Jesus was saying to them, come on, come and arrest me. Now, I just quoted from Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, and then I came back to verse 6, and I still thought it started a bit too far in. Listen how Paul introduces those words. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, and being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. But this is how he begins. Your attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ. Learn from me, he said. I'm humble and gentle. And that is the purpose of him telling us that Christ took upon himself the greatest act of humility that any man could take on. A willing submission to the humiliation of the cross. And although he was co-equal with the Father and could truly say on one occasion to his, uh, those who came to arrest him, I could call on twelve legions of angels to protect me. You know how many that is? A legion is about 6,000 men. Six times twelve, whatever that is. 72,000 angels I could... He only needed one, actually, to defeat the Roman army. But he never used his power for his own personal advantage. And Paul says, your attitude should be the same as that is Christ Jesus.
we must be like him. You see that, don't you? Of course you do. But what precisely does that mean? What is humility? Oh, you say, it means I mustn't be proud, I mustn't be boastful, I mustn't be self-centered. Well, that's all true, but the problem with that is it's negative. I want to know what it is, not what it isn't. Oh, well then, um, surely thinking must be that I, uh, humility must be that I must think about myself as not really any good, believing ourselves to be quite useless, a little view, little view of our gifts and abilities, so we conclude that we're not really of very much value. Well, of course, there is some truth in that, and some people are always telling you how useless they are until in the end we all believe them. Well then, but, but that's still very negative, isn't it? Well then, humility must be what we give up. Well, maybe, but that isn't really humility. You could join a monastery tomorrow. That wouldn't be humility. You could deny yourself any and every pleasure that this world has to offer, but that's not humility. That's just asceticism. The humility of Christ was not seen so much in what he gave up and what he suffered, but why he did it. It's what he made others. The humility of John the Baptist is seen preeminently in his simple phrase, pointing to Jesus, I must decrease, he must increase. Now if John the Baptist had merely said, I must decrease, that isn't humility. That may be stupidity, dishonest or even arrogant pride. But when he said he must increase, that was humility. When Christ became man, he dignified the human nature by becoming a human being. He didn't come as a monkey or a horse or a dog, least of all as a cat, not even as a sheep, a goat or an ox. He came as a human being. Why? To dignify the human race. The immeasurable value of your life and mine, whoever we are, is seen above all in the fact that Christ, the Lord of glory, became like us to redeem us, buy us back from sin, and fit us for heaven. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Will you allow me a little bit of imagination for a moment? I want you to imagine you're listening into the boardroom of heaven before time began. The triune Father, Son and Holy Spirit are discussing together, knowing what will happen in the Garden of Eden, knowing what will happen, they are discussing the plan of salvation, the rescue plan for the human race. Someone must go from here to there and become like them in all their human weakness, but without sin, so that the price, the penalty can be paid. Who will go? Now imagine this. Eyes turn to the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And he says, I'm not going down there for them. Do you realize who I am, Father? The sovereign Lord who with you created the whole universe. I am holy and pure and clean. I'm not going, they're not worth it. They thumb their nose at you, stuff their fingers in their ears, rebel against you, go their own way. I'm not going for them. Send an angel or an archangel, whatever they are. But he didn't say that, did he? I'll go. Why? 
Because I want them to know how valuable they are. And they'll not learn it any other way. If you send an angel or an archangel, that's all they're worth. An angel, an archangel, there's plenty of those. There's only one of me, God's only son. And I want them to know how valuable they are, how precious they are. Yes, in all their sin, in all their rotten life, in all the way they've made a mess of it all, in all the way they've gone wrong and spoiled other people's lives as well. I want them to know how valuable they are. In other words, he humbled himself not to show how humble he is, but to show how valued we are. Do you ever feel insignificant? Overlooked? (laughs) Well, we all are, actually. Then just take a glance at the cross and you'll see how valuable you are. Humility is a life and purpose that sets out to exalt and dignify others. That's what Jesus did. And that's why Jesus exposed the false humility of the Pharisees, their prayer and their fasting, their tithing and their sackcloth. It was just to gain a reputation with God and men. True humility isn't to gain anything, it's to give. There are millions today in all religions, including sadly some form of Christianity, that become what they call penitents. That is, they adopt a lifestyle of self-abasement, beating their bodies, denying themselves, fasting, in order to gain the appearance of thinking themselves nothing. They may be sincere, but I have to say it's a sham. It doesn't work that way. You could crawl around the world on your ear, on your knees, on your ears if you can, on your knees but that is not humility. The test of the humble life is this, who is benefited by my humility? Myself or others? Christ came so that we may be, if I may quote the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2 and verse 6, Christ came that we might be seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed towards us in his kindness in Christ Jesus. He came so that people like us may one day sit with him in the kingdom of heaven without any shame or sin at all attached to our life because he's taken it all away. That is why he came, to dignify us, to make us what he really wants us to be. So humility, my friends, is not what you're not. It's not even what you are or think you are. And it's not seen in what you give up either. It is what you do to exalt and dignify others. That is the example Jesus set. That was the purpose of the foot washing exercise. By this you will show others how valuable they are, he says. Now that is so important that I'm going to repeat it. Humility is not what you're not, it's not even what you are, it's not what you think you are, and it's not even seen in what you give up. It is what you do, what I do, to exalt and dignify others. And if the opposite of humility is pride, you'll immediately see that carping criticism, gossip and slander are the evidence of a proud and not a humble heart. There's a word you know that Paul uses in his letter to the Ephesians that is shockingly powerful. In Ephesians 4 and verse 2, he begins by saying, be completely humble 
and gentle. Then he goes on to say, be patient and bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And that phrase, completely humble, translates one Greek word, the word tepinos, that in the first century never had a good meaning. It was always negative. You see, in the first century, in classical Greek particularly, tepinos meant groveling, someone low-born and slavish. The Greeks and the Romans, like the modern-day 21st century, encouraged people to think big. Be the big man. Be macho. Be confident, self-reliant, personal success. And Paul picked up the opposite word of that and said, that's what I want you to be like. Because if you weren't that, you see, as far as they were concerned, you were feeble and weak and despicable. And Paul takes that very word and gives it a new meaning. And in the New Testament, that word tepinos is always used in a good sense. So Christ in Philippians 2 and verse 8, here it comes again. This is the word, he humbled himself. He made himself low-born. He made himself despicable. Why? Well, you know why, don't you? For you, for me, for us. And it's the very word used here in Matthew 11:29. I'm gentle and humble in heart. That's what he expects of his disciples. Christ defines the real meaning of humility. Nobody else does. Now see how Paul expresses it in Philippians 2 and verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility, there's the word, what have we got to do? Count others better than yourselves. You see, it's what you do to exalt and dignify others. Well now, before we close, let's answer this question. How does it work today? How do we we to simply assume that we are all rubbish and can do nothing useful or good? Are we all to go to work tomorrow assuming that we'll do our work more badly than anyone else, if that grammar is allowed? Uh, Not at all. But it does mean that we recognize, first of all, that all our gifts and abilities, all our successes and our triumphs, any promotion or congratulation we may receive is attributed first and foremost to the God who gave us those gifts. Isaiah 26 and verse 12 tells us, all that we have accomplished, you have done for us. But this, of course, will affect how we treat others. For those of you who employ or who are in charge of others, it means that we will delight to express appreciation and and congratulation in order that they may be dignified and exalted. To make others feel good about themselves and and the workplace to feel good about themselves when they do a good job. It comes down to that. Congratulation and appreciation in the workplace are almost as important as remuneration. It'll mean that you talk up the abilities of your colleagues, even if it means that you are put into secondary light. In the office, the factory, the workshop, the classroom, we won't gossip and slander. We won't put down other people's character in order to contrast it with our own. We will have a small view of ourselves whilst doing our work to the very best of our ability. See how it works? Now, there's nothing wrong with being pleased with what we've done and having done a good job well, but we won't contrast it to others and boast about it in order to make theirs look in secondary light. Our overriding concern tomorrow will be that others are counted better than ourselves and receive full and more recognition for their achievements. And few of us 
Don't mind this, providing we're not overlooked, bypassed, or ignored in the process. And that's precisely where Christian humility kicks in. And humility knows how to apologize and say sorry. We have some dear friends working in Papua New Guinea, two German friends from the Liebenzell Mission. They'll be with us in our home very shortly. And when Gerhard and Brigitte were working in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, they said that they were dealing with a tribe that had no word for sorry and thank you. The men never said sorry and thank you. If they bumped into a door, they would always say, that stupid door bumped into me. They genuinely said that. They never said, and they said, when the man became a Christian, they had to teach him to say sorry and thank you. Men are never wrong, are they? The humility is when a man can say to his wife, I'm sorry. And his kids, I'm sorry. Oh, and it works the other way as well. Is there somebody you need to say sorry to today? So that they'll feel better about it? That's Christian humility. Exalting them. Dignifying them. So to our wives and our children, our staff, our employer, our friends, our church members, our neighbours, do you need to say sorry to someone this morning? Is this what Christ means in our text when he tells us that if we imitate his gentleness and humility, we will find rest for our souls? You see, this kind of humility, seeking the best welfare and reputation of others, will take away the striving and the longing, our jealousy and our envy and our critical spirit and our gossip and our malice and our slander and our conceit and our self-deceit and our unworthy ambitions. They'll all go. Where's the Christian who knows everything? Talks incessantly about themselves to build a reputation. Complains always of being overlooked. Pushes themselves forward. Will never do anything unless people take recognition of it. That's not Christian humility. How often you and I are caught out belittling someone else in order to advance our own reputation. Yes, she's a very nice person really, but... And then it comes in. And what we're really saying is, but of course I'm a much nicer person. You haven't overlooked that, have you? How often we complain against others only to show that we could have done it a lot better. But it is, all, is it always possible in this self-seeking, self-advancing, self-gratifying society to imitate the humility of Christ? Is that possible? Well, of course it is. Because Paul wisely wrote, just before he encouraged the Christians at Ephesus to be completely humble, tapinos, he wrote this. He is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Now, he doesn't mean by that that God will enable you to swim the Mediterranean backstroke. He's not talking about that. People take it right out of their context and then they claim all kind of wacky things that the Christian is able to do. And they don't go on and read the next verse because that makes it tough. Paul said he's able to do immeasurably more than we all score. Imagine according to his power at, or is at work within us. Therefore, be completely humble and gentle with one another. Remember, ultimately, humility is not what we think or don't think, say or don't say, what we do or don't do. It's how we exalt others. It is how much we copy Christ and imitate him in order to make others better than they are and better than ourselves. We must learn from Christ. For he was gentle 
and humble in heart. And that way, we will find rest for our souls. Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, adored by the angels, loved by God the Father, all-powerful, who knows everything about everyone always, who is wise and pure and holy and good, left the glory and the peace and the beauty of heaven and came to this sad and sordid human race and he humbled himself. Why? To raise us, people like us, to the dignity of the children of God. And to show how valuable we are. Let's pray together. Let's be quiet a moment before God. Ask Him to search out our hearts. Is there something we've been doing and saying that has just been intended to glorify ourselves? Lift up ourselves. Is there someone I need to say sorry to? Sovereign Lord, we thank you for the beautiful example of humility that though Christ was rich in all the splendor of heaven, yet for our sakes became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. We thank you for the humble way that he, the sovereign Lord of creation, eternal, wise and good, cared for the poor and the outcasts and the bereaved and the little children. Thank you for his example of humility when he washed the disciples' feet and submitted himself to the violent and cruel treatment of his trial and crucifixion. And we thank you that it was for our sake so that we may come to realize how valuable we are, whoever we are, and that we may be exalted one day to become sons and daughters of God. O oh Lord, forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for when we exalt ourselves in order to demean others. Forgive us when we're too proud to apologize and say sorry. Forgive us when we allow others to be hurt in order that we may be applauded. Forgive our gossip and our criticism. Forgive us when we deliberately belittle others to place ourselves in a better light. Lord, help us to be like Christ. Give us a humble mind and spirit always seeking the good of others. Help us when we're pleased with what we've done not to be proud and boastful, parading before the world, but to attribute all our success, all our achievements, the gifts that you gave us for without you we're nothing and so Lord may our humility be seen in an outward display not in an outward display but in the way we love to make others better than ourselves and to turn the eyes of the world away from us and to our beautiful Saviour Jesus Christ in whose name we pray Amen